In this video, I will show how the creation myth of the Proto-Indo-Europeans informed the ritual of sacrifice that persisted from Greece and Germania all the way over to India and Iran. It is a fascinating journey as we take an academic look comparing an 18th century English society with a remote Nigerian tribe to show how there is a link between the creation of the cosmos and eating dinner with friends. And all this influences societal order, ritual, myth and sacrifice. And before we get to the end of the video, it would have allowed us to reconstruct the sacrificial ritual of the Indo-Europeans. I'm genuinely excited about this talk, a deep dive into Indo-European mythology. And so, if this sounds interesting to you, then grab yourself a cup of tea and welcome to Crackenford. Dinner with friends is a way to remain bonded to those close to you. In fact, many first dates start with a meal. And so, if we look at myth, we often see the eating and sharing of food as a commitment to friendship, of forming a bond, and we see this, for example, with Persephone and her trip to the underworld. The consumption of pomegranate seeds bonded her to the underworld, to Hades, and if we think about it further, the sharing of food in society actually helps people integrate into society. And the better the food, the deeper the bond, and deeper the integration. But this ritual of sharing food not only creates a bond between those sharing the food, but it could be argued it creates a boundary between those that are sharing, the insiders, and those that are not in attendance, people you could consider as outsiders. Now, before I continue, I'll talk about how sacrifice happened thousands of years ago, and some viewers may find this unsettling. And so, if you think you will, then please watch my video on the creation of the world, which covers similar topics, but at a more general level of academia. But for all of you still watching, then let me continue by saying that Society is more complex than being just about insiders and outsiders. There are boundaries separating groups of insiders from each other and boundaries separating individuals uh, for a plethora of reasons. And so society is not just about solidarity. It almost always includes hierarchy. But we do see an attempts to deliver this solidarity while trying to remove the hierarchy. And a marvellous example of this is an obscure British gentleman's club which came to the attention of the religious historian Bruce Lincoln when he was looking at this subject. And this is because one of the society members wrote a book about it, a book called The Life and Death of the Sublime Society of Stakes. And it was written by a member called Brother Walter Arnold in 1871. And if you're interested in it, he is now out of copyright and so is freely available to read online. But back to our story and this society called the Sublime Society of Beef Steaks. Uh, it was founded in 1735 and survived for about 130 years. And it consisted of 24 elected members who assembled for dinner every Saturday between November and June for the express purpose of eating meat. Good quality meat with the bylaws of the society stating that beef steaks shall be the only meat for dinner. 
In its beginning, the society was attended by artists and thespians, but by the turn of the century it had become a fashionable club for the upper strata of society. And we know this because Brother Arnold left a record of the 153 members elected after 1770, of which 44 were nobility, 22 were members of the British Parliament, and 12 were high-ranking officers, although artists did persist alongside merchants and theatre managers. And so this society became a group where members of different places in the outside world gathered to eat together. And whilst within the society there was a sincere attempt to treat everyone as equals, members all wore the same uniform with buttons that bore the motto Beef and Liberty to foster a spirit of egalitarianism amongst all the members um, who would also call each other brother. There, there were jokes that were told uh, about all members, a way of reducing the conversation to a common level, and, as with all fine British societies, there were more rules and customs than you could shake a large stick at. So much so that members could be judged guilty of an infraction at any time, which allowed further rituals of humiliation and comic rebuke towards the guilty brother. These mechanisms of society, a uniform, familiar salutations, status inversions and joking behaviour, are all well-established means of removing differential status and creating a spirit of common belonging. And society's brother Arnold nostalgically sums this up as the friendly equality that existed among the members of the sublime society of beefsteaks, tempered always by good breeding, constituted one of its principal charms. This egalitarian spirit which persisted within society was best expressed via its menu, which was central to the group's existence. The menu insisted on selling expensive steaks as the sole menu item, and by this members could and would define themselves as an elite. And by insisting on their steaks as their sole bear, and so a common dish amongst them all, they define themselves as social equals, meaning that not only did they eat together, but they all ate the same equally valued dishes. However, Brother Arnold does give a clue about the imperfection of this egalitarianism when he wrote that the friendly equality was tempered by good breeding, which meant that in practice, members with titles or prestige would be given a level of respect others may not have had in what was a very class-bound English society. I mean, Brother Arnold's book gives examples of humorous songs displaying a consistent structure in which members are sequentially mocked, but with the sequence always culminating in praise of the upper nobility which was in stock contrast to the ridicule directed at others. And again, this is another nod to the imperfect egalitarianism within the society. You would have seen visitors being introduced to titled members first, and when Arnold attempts to explain the sublime society's demise, the first thing he mentions is the loss of the royal family, with the retirement of the, His Royal Highness the Duke of Sussex in 1839. And he writes, It is needless to say that the presence of royalty enhanced the celebrity and the absence of so distinguished an element affected its prosperity. 
Now, what is striking is the way the hierarchical titles are preceded with the egalitarian title Brother, such that we see mentioned within the book Brother the Duke of York, Brother the Duke of Leinster, or even Brother His Royal Highness the Prince of Wales, afterwards George IV. And so whilst there was an inherent spirit of egalitarianism within the society, there is also an inherent contradiction of this with titles being kept. And this play went on for over a hundred years until this contradiction, amongst other things, led to the society dissolving. Now, this society is an interesting benchmark as an egalitarian menu, like social egalitarianism, are rare things indeed, especially given that all societies are either implicitly or explicitly hierarchical. And so, when food distribution fails to reflect that hierarchy, it seems almost inevitable that we will see contradiction creeping, as we saw with the sublime society. But an equal distribution of food among society is not a usual thing. There are inequalities in social order, and the dietary consumption of the various parts of that society reflect that inequality. But even if food could be distributed equally, would it be? And this brings us to ritual behaviours and the ritual distribution of food. For example, we see the Nigerian tribe of the Noop have a ritual sacrifice for rain called Fitku. And within this ritual, the order in which participants eat is strictly governed. First, the priest who has performed the offering may taste the victim's flesh. Then others follow in order of rank and age. The same procedure is followed at the Gonja, day of the great porridge, where meat from a sacrificed cow is publicly consumed. As English social anthropologist Jack Goody describes it, the spokesman or linguist for the division holds up portions of the meat and calls for representatives of the various subdivisions to step forward and take their share. Not only does he call out the names of the various social divisions, but also those of certain specialist occupations and other roles, including witches, thieves and rapists. Everyone in the division shares in the mill, even the antisocial elements. The whole community partakes willy-nilly in the commonsensality. It is a joint mill with clear political overtones, or rather a mixture of political and communal components since participation reinforces the position of the ruling estate. And so we see social integration achieved through ensuring everyone participates in the mill, while the demands of the hierarchy are also satisfied. But whilst everyone eats the same food together, they do not eat at the same time, with the order in which the food is passed out replicating the person's place in the hierarchy. Another system in which the conflicting demands of social integration and hierarchy are resolved is found in Dinka's sacrifice, as described by British anthropologist Godfrey Leinhardt in his book on the Dinka religion. He mentions that at their feasts, the equivalent of a butcher's chart is presented showing the different places of an ox, and so these being of unequal taste and unequal in value. And these are assigned to different social groups within the community. The right hind leg goes to the maternal kin of the sacrificer, the right front leg to the men of his bloodline the head to the old people of the village, and so the division continues. And so this butcher's chart 
is not just a guide for sacrificial distribution of meat, but also can be regarded as a diagram of social statuses. You can look at this as the people are put together as a bull is put together. And since every bull or ox is destined ultimately for sacrifice, each one demonstrates potentially the altered social relationships of the sacrificing group, the members of which are indeed put together in each beast and represented in the precise relations to each other in the meat which it provides. In effect, the anatomy of an ox is representative of the hierarchy of the social order. And so we see these two types of society, those that impose social order through the distribution of different portions of meat and those that impose social order through the sequence which the meat is eaten. But in both scenarios, the meat is the material for understanding and implementing social order. And so some of you watching may be wondering where the myth is behind this. And if you press the like and subscribe button, the myth will magically appear. So I've spoken in the past about the myth of creation of the Proto-Indo-European speaking peoples. But if you haven't watched my previous videos, then in synopsis, the beginning starts with two primordial beings, Manu and Yimo, and the cow. And Yimo is sacrificed by his twin brother Manu to create the world and then people. And the cow is then sacrificed to provide food and so the animals for the world. And then the people rescue cattle and sacrifice these to the gods to ensure more cattle are put onto the world. And while the sacrifice of a bovine is straightforward to offer one bovine to the gods may allow the gods to give you a number of bovine on the world the sacrifice of Yemo is somewhat more complex Yemo was considered the king figure and it is the fate of Yemo the first king that is really important to us and will help us understand the ritual and myth further and whilst i'll have a specific video on the king of indo-european culture and his reign in the underworld, which is where he goes when he is sacrificed, here we will look specifically at his role in social order and hierarchy. When Yemo was sacrificed, his kingly body provided different resources for the cosmos. And we know that his flesh was the soil, his blood was the sea, his bones were the rocks and the sun came from his eyes. And this is a common motif we see across many Indo-European and even Abrahamic myths. But something I've not discussed so much is social order. Where did this idea come from? Now within the creation myth, part of Yemo's body was used to make people, different classes of people. Priests and sovereign figures were made from Yemo's head, warriors from his chest and arms, and the commoners or providers came from his lower body. And we see evidence of this in various Indo-European texts, such as the Rig Veda, where we have the Purusa hymn, and lines 11 to 14 read, When they apportioned the man, into how many parts did they arrange him? What was his mouth? What his two arms? What are said to be his two thighs, his two feet? The Brahmin was his mouth. The ruler was made his two arms. As to his thighs, that is what the free man was. From his two feet, the servant was born. The moon was born from his mind. 
From his eye the sun was born, from his mouth Indra and Agni, from his breath Vayu was born, from his navel was the midspace, from his head the heaven developed, from his two feet the earth and the directions from his ears, thus they arranged the worlds. And then there is also the poem of the Dove King, which we only have a 19th century version of available to us, but we know it was mentioned in the 13th century and which itself probably stems from the Book of Enoch, written around 2,000 years ago, and so should be considered the text from the Abrahamic religion. And this has lines that read as follow. Our bright light comes from the Lord, the red sun from the face of God, the young shiny moon from his breast, the bright dawn from the eyes of God, the sparkling stars from his vestments, the wild winds from the Holy Spirit, from this our little czars are on earth, from the holy head of Adam, from his princes and heroes come into being, from the holy bones of Adam, from this are the orthodox peasants, from the holy knee of Adam. With the evidence written in these pieces of literature, I shall now leverage the work of Bruce Lincoln, and I'll reference this in the description, to show that these writings form something that could be considered a charter for the Indo-European practice of sacrifice and that this sacrifice was a ritual repetition of creation or specifically the proto-Indo-European creation myth and so allowing the renewal of the cosmos and of society. Now I do talk about sources for the creation myth in previous videos and this map shows where we have literary sources for this. And so, let us start by looking at one of these, the myth of Romulus and Remus, which is about the founding of Rome. And I've talked about this in my video on Romulus and Remus, an Indo-European creation myth, where I explain how the myth has evolved over time and where the character Romulus comes from, which is etymologically linked to Yemo. But for us in this video, we need to look at earlier versions of the myth. And in these versions, Romulus does not turn into a god and disappear, but instead is murdered by the Roman Senate. And I'll read a passage from the book The Life of Romulus by Plutarch that goes as follows. Some people conjecture that the senators rose up against him and dismembered him in the temple of Ephostos, distributing his body amongst themselves and each one put in a piece in the folds of his robes in order to carry them away. Here we see the distribution of Romulus's bodily parts going to each senator, and it should be noted that there is no mention of any going to Romulus's family. And this makes sense as it was the noble and respected families of the first senators that actually founded Rome that formed Roman society. And it was the first senators who were known as the fathers of the city. And if you consider this and consider what we know about the distribution of sacrifice, then you may understand why Romulus's family isn't taking part in this instance of a quasi-sacrifice. The myth of Romulus and Remus shows Romulus as being one with Rome whilst he was alive, but it was at his death and subsequent dismemberment that the senators' families then received different limbs and so went on to assume various roles in the Roman society which they formed. 
but you may not be convinced. As I know, there are some very sceptical people amongst you. And so we can see another similar example in the writings of Dionysus of Halicarnassus, who gives an account of Feriae Latinae, one of the most ancient forms of Italic, or what could be considered modern-day Italian, sacrifice. And I shall read a couple of passages from this. Planning for his agreements with these cities to stand firm for all time, Tarquin thought to designate a common temple for the Romans, the Latins and the Hernicans, and those Volscians who had entered his alliance in order that they might come together each year at the appointed place to congregate, to feast together and to take part in common rituals. When all had accepted this happily, he designated the place where they would make the assembly, a high mountain lying just about in the middle of the peoples overlooking the city of the Albans. And he set down laws that they would hold assemblies here each year, while there would be truces among all of them, and they would jointly perform common sacrifices to that deity called Jupiter Latialis, the Jupiter of the Latin people, and they would feast together. And he ranked what each city needed to provide for the rites and the portion which each one ought to receive. The cities taking part in the festival and the sacrifices were 47 in number and the Romans celebrate these festivals and these sacrifices down to this day, calling them the Latinae. And of the cities which share in these rites, some bring lambs, some cheeses, some a portion of milk, some anything similar like a sacrificial cake, and each one receives its ranked portion of the one ball which is sacrificed in common. And they sacrifice for all, and the Romans possess power over the rites. The Feriae Latinae is a ritual of solidarity and hierarchy in which were celebrated both the coming together of various societies within the Latin cultures, but also the unequal status of its members. And these differences were expressed in the foods which were given and consumed at the ritual. Representatives of each city brought different types and portions of food to the feast, and these were distributed with particular emphasis on the portions of meat from the sacrificial ball. The largest and most powerful cities received large prestigious cuts of meat, and the smaller portions were allotted the lesser cuts of meat. And we are even aware of some cities which became so small as to be considered insignificant and so were denied a portion of meat. And one can imagine that, given the socio-political importance of this event, the distribution of meat was scrutinised carefully and any mistake in the assignment of portions or any failure to pray for the whole of Roman society would amount to a violation of the established hierarchy and so may well have forced the entire ritual to be repeated. Therefore, we can say a similar motif exists in both the Ferrae Latinae and the myth of Romulus's dismemberment. The body is cut into pieces in a way society is divided into segmentary parts, but at the same time, there is no testament to link ritual and the Indo-European myth of creation together in these examples. But if we look at Germania, chapter 39, written by Tacitus, we see the following said. They say that the Semnones are the oldest and most noble of the Subi. 
This belief is confirmed in a religious ceremony of ancient times. At a fixed time, all the people of the same blood come together by legations in a wood that is consecrated by the signs of their ancestors and by an ancient dread. Barbaric rites celebrate the horrific origins through the sacrifice and dismemberment of a man for the public good. There, the belief of all looks backwards to the primordial past as if that spot there were the origins of the race. The god who is the ruler of all things is there, others are inferior and subservient. The good fortune of the Semnones adds to their authority. One hundred cantons are inhabited for them, and this great body causes them to believe themselves to be the head of the Subi. Now some of you may already be piecing things together, but I want to talk about these Subian cultures for a moment, and the fact that the Semnones were considered the oldest and the most noble part of them. Before this passage, Tacitus notes that numerous tribes existed, all of which were part of the Subians. These themselves were part of the Herminones, one of the three great tribes of the Germani. The Subians understood a mythical genealogy which allowed them to be connected to each other. And so this ritual allowed the renewing of these bonds between all the people of the same blood. Now, whilst we do not know the details of this mythical genealogy, it is probably linked to an earlier passage in Tacitus' book, in chapter 2, which states, The Gemani celebrate in ancient songs, which are their only means of remembrance or recalled in the past. An earth-born god, Twisto, his son Manus, was the origin of their race and their founder. They assign three sons to Manus, and from their names they call those close to the ocean Ingavonis, those in the middle, Herminones, and all the rest is the Vornes. This mythology is somewhat different to early Indo-European belief. It has evolved for, as opposed to using Nemo's body as creating classes of people, we now see it used to create three tribes of people, the Hemones, Istavones, and the Ingevones, all which take their names from sons of Manus, which were, for those who are curious about this, Ermin, attested from the Old Norse Eumenur, a sovereign god, we have Istu, almost certainly a warrior god, and Ingwi from the old Norse Ingvi Freya, the god of the commoners. Thus, aligning the gods and tribes' names to the three classes of people. And we can feel confident of this because the names of Manus and Twisto mean man and twin, and so align directly with the Proto-Indo-European names of the primordial beings. Now, the argumentative among you may say that Twisto is only a semantic match to Yimo and not cognate, but we do see semantic and phonetic names linked to Yimo elsewhere, such as in Ymir, the Old Norse, the primordial being of the Nordic creation myth, giving us confidence that Twisto and Yimo are referring to the same primordial being. Now we go back to the Simnoni's sacrifice in which a human victim was dismembered. We have Tacitus telling us that this was carried out as a barbaric rites to celebrate the horrific origins, which we can interpret as the tribes are repeating the creation of the world from the dismembered body of the ill-fated Yemo, or twin, and so renewing the cosmos and society as part of this ritual. And we see that the various groups of the Subi were not equal, with Tacitus saying that the Simnonis were the head of the tribes, and an effect of the ritual was to confirm this status, 
we don't know how this body was shared out or what happened to the various parts of it. However, what Tacitus says is very interesting, as it says the Simonis believe themselves to be the head of the Subi, and other tribes were their bodily trunk. Now, this could be a metaphor, or it could be a direct link to the parts of the body being distributed with the head to the king and the body to the warriors and the lower body to the commoners and thus aligning to the body parts of Emo used in the building of the cosmos and society. But there is no way to be absolutely sure Tacitus meant it this way, not given the current evidence. So having dealt with the sacrifice of the Ferre Latinae, which seemed to focus on the sociogenic side of creation and the Simnoni's sacrifice, including the sociogenic and cosmogenic sides of creation, seems fair that we look at Indo-Iranian culture to see how they viewed these rituals. And one of the clearest examples we have is from the Ateria Brahmana, where instructions are given for the ritual dismemberment in animal sacrifice. And here, the sacred formulae which informs dismemberment align well to the cosmogonic verses of the Purusa hymn in the Rig Veda. Lay its feet down to the north, Cause its eye to go to the sun, send forth its breath to the wind, its life force to the atmosphere, its ear to the cardinal points, its flesh to the earth. Thus the sacrificer places the sacrifice in these worlds. We also see a similar cosmogonic view of sacrifice within Iranian myth, but not through Zoroastrianism, but through a ritual performed by Magi and described by Herodotus. I know the customs used by the Persians to be these. It is not their custom to establish statues, temples and altars, and they hold those who build them to be foolish, I suppose because they never believe the gods to be anthropomorphic, as do the Greeks. They do honour to Zeus on the highest of mountains, ascending them to offer sacrifice and calling the entire rim of heaven Zeus. They sacrifice to the sun and also the moon and to earth and to fire and to water and to the winds. And this is the sacrifice of these Persians with regard to the aforesaid gods. They build no altars and kindle no fires when thinking to sacrifice, nor do they indulge in libations, flutes, fillets or barley. And whoever wishes to sacrifice to one of the gods, he leads the victim to a purified place and he calls the god, being wreathed with a tiara chiefly of myrtle. Now in truth, they do not pray for blessings for the sacrificer himself, but pray for good to come to all Persians and to the king, for the sacrificer thinks himself to be among all the Persians. Then, having cut the victim into pieces limb from limb, boiled the flesh and strewn the softest grasses, particularly clover, that he then arranges all the flesh on top of this. When this is arranged, a man, a magus, standing beside him, sings a theogony as it is not their custom to perform sacrifices without a magus. Having waited a little while, the sacrificer carries away the flesh and uses it as he pleases. It is significant that the magus sings a theogony while performing the sacrifice, for this is almost certainly an account of creation, and not a genealogy of the gods. And there are other interesting facts about this passage. For example, that 
Herodotus uses the word dios to represent gods, even though he states they are not anthropomorphic, and so not in human form. And this representation of their gods isn't a surprise. It is my academic view that the gods of the Proto-Indo-European speaking peoples were more akin to spirits than personified, and I talk about this in a number of my videos. And then alongside this, he lists the gods as representing heaven, sun, moon, earth, fire, water, and the winds. And these are not the usual Indo-European gods. These are elements within the cosmos. These are elements used to create the cosmos, the gods. And so it seems as though Herodotus is describing a ritual of creation and cosmogony and not a theogony. And we see numerous reigning sources of this myth, or more specifically, reflexes of it, with the myth of creation through the sacrifice of Yima, a name cognate with Yimo. And with this, the cosmos creates metals. And we see an example of this in the skinned Gumenigwiza, where the myth reflexes with a Manichaean version. The sky is from the skin, the earth is from the flesh, the mountains are from bone, and the plants are from the hair of the demon Kuni. And this poetry, which was sang, is probably a very similar version to what Herodotus tells us happens when the dismembered pieces of the victim are set out carefully. And so we can conclude that in doing so, the Magus is recreating the cosmos. Before I go into the conclusion of what we're seeing and why, I want to say thank you to Bruce Lincoln, a religious historian whose work I respect and a student of Merchia Eliade, another great religious historian, as it was he who showed that Indo-European sacrifice was a ritual repetition of creation, cosmogony and sociogenic. And this sacrificial ritual had victims, sometimes humans, sometimes animal, sometimes both, representing Nemo or the bovine of the primordial, and once killed, they were then dismembered and carved up with great care. We do know that some of the victims' pieces were distributed to humans and were eaten. The differential value and prestige of various cuts of meat representing the hierarchical position of the individual group who received them. Other pieces were dispersed to the cosmos, probably through the medium of fire, as this was an effective means of transferring a material substance into the cosmos. And whilst modern views try and hide these rituals in history, and I've even had people comment on my videos asking me not to teach such things as they're inhumane, we are historians and have to acknowledge that what has happened so we can learn from the past. And sacrifices did take place with humans as victims, all to reinforce social order, to maintain society. And whilst the end of this ritual, where there is a division in meat, is an important moment in this process to show social status within this ritual setting, the very start of the sacrifice where all are observing the victim taking his last breath, well, this brings all the people of the various tribes or social circles all together as one single body for that moment, all equal. But then the sacrifice takes place, ritual prayers are said, and then the attention of the people turns towards the dismemberment of the body. 
And so there is a different interest now in the victim. Everybody is still as one in their relationship with the divine, but also in their hierarchies representing different, well, representing social differentiation of the groups taking part, receiving their different parts of the victim. And so to explain the ritual, we see the individuals and groups gather together for the ritual. Here they surrender their sense of individualism as they unite within their society. They are bonded by kinship, politics, belief, or a common purpose. And then the sacrifice is made. Prayers about the cosmogony are sung. And then dismemberment happens, carefully ensuring the pieces of the victim are properly managed. And when these pieces are given to the various groups, then the bonds that form society break back down into their constituent parts to be reunited again at the next sacrifice. We can therefore look at a victim as the whole, but a victim also contains the potential to be cut into pieces, which creates social segmentation. A direct link to the Indo-European king, who contains social segmentation through the three classes of priests, warriors and commoners, when dismembered. Now, Bruce Lincoln says of this point that the king only contains these uh, segmentations when he is dismembered. But I would argue that a king is a king because he understands the commoner, the warrior, the priest, all at the same time. And so he is king because he contains this understanding of all parts of society within him. And this is what, well, makes the king the king. For when the king was ill or injured, he was no longer fit to be king, as he no longer accurately reflected society or the cosmos. The fact is that the Indo-European cosmogony portrayed the first sacrificial victims, whether they be human or animal, as possessing the cosmos within their bodies. And this comes into existence through dismemberment. And we can see an example of this in the Athara Veda, which referred to a sacrificial goat. Truly, the goat strode through this world in the beginning. This earth became its breast, heaven its back, the atmosphere its middle, the cardinal points its sides, the oceans its bellies, truth and right its eyes, all truth and faith its breath, the varaj its head. Truly, this is a sacrifice without limits, the goat accompanied by five grain offerings. And the reason for this is simple and elegant, that the victim can become the cosmos because the cosmos created the victim. But where did the cosmos come from? Well, it was from an earlier sacrifice. And because the cosmos is of no particular age, the first goat or the first ox, the first man, so on, it's not actually referring to an absolute first, but it just means before something else preceded it. The world had no absolute beginning and was not deemed to have an absolute end, only the flow of matter from the cosmos into creation and back again, an endless cycle of sacrifice and creation and creation and sacrifice. In India, sacrificial practice led to speculation on the nature of the universe, on time, on eternity and on change and changelessness. 
considerations that are now part of philosophy or metaphysics. This helps people think about their place in the cosmos. But on the other side of the Indo-European world, sacrifice and philosophical speculation also went hand in hand, both influencing our view of Druids, to which there are two academic directions often inferred, that they were either wise, and so would not sacrifice, or that they sacrificed humans, and the two opinions are rarely seen hand in hand. And I can talk specifically about why this is if you want me to deep dive into Druids and human sacrifice. But to me, sacrifice and their philosophy were inseparable because sacrifice informed the philosophy which we can see from the Indian example as well. But we also see this if you read a description of the Druids by Pomponius Miller, who leveraged the now lost work of Posidonios. These people are arrogant and superstitious, and at one time they were so savage that they believed a man to be the best and most pleasing sacrificial victim for the gods. Vestiges of their past ferocity remain, so that while they refrain from the final dismemberments, nonetheless they take away a small portion from the victim when taking the consecrated to the altars. Still, they have their own eloquence and their masters of wisdom. The Druids. They profess to know the size and form of the universe and of earth, the motion of sky and stars, and what the gods desire. The Druids' understanding of time and the cosmos originate from the practice of sacrifice and the dismemberment of the victim. And again, this should not be a surprise given the importance of this in Indo-European creation, where Yemo is cut apart to form the cosmos and society. And so, what does this all mean? What can we take away from this? We know the Indo-European myth of creation had sacrifice, human sacrifice, and this was initially represented through Yemo, but occasionally a bull was included, and then eventually this replaces Yemo, dependent on the culture and time and so the version of the Indo-European creation myth that's being told. And so we see the sacrifice and dismemberment of analogues of humans and cattle to recreate this event, the sacrifice of Yemo and the bovine, to recreate the myth as ritual. But for those interested in philosophy, then I would argue that the Greek philosophers owe much to the Indo-European myth and practice of sacrifice. For example, Empedocles' anti-sacrificial polemic has to be deeply indebted to the Proto-Indo-European myth and ritual in his view of the cosmic processes. He talks of two fundamental forces, strife, which tears all things apart, and love, which joins things together. And these really are only abstract reformulations of dismemberment and creation, as they appear in sacrifice. And we can make a similar observation regarding the Aristotelian methods of analysis and synthesis, where ideas are dismembered, and put back together, all this like a sacrificial ox. And so, next time you're at dinner with friends, you're more than welcome to perceive it as an act of sacrifice and creation. And so, if it is your way, then remember to praise the gods at the dinner table. <laughs>
If you want to know more, I'd recommend watching this video on how the world was made and hope you all enjoy drinking the beverage of your choice whilst watching, hitting the like button and learning. So with that, please stay safe and well. And this was Crack and Ford.